1: along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol, who is the executive director of the Wellmed Charitable Foundation, serves as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, a nationally known gerontologist, graduate of Trinity University, and uh, University of Incarnate Word. You kept well, your money you local. To,
2: yeah, my, yeah, let me get you the rest of you my resume. You spend local. <laughs>
1: you spend local. That's right.
2: Yeah. Educate locally. I like
1: that. So we have a great guest coming up, Peggy Grandy, who is uh, the last... Of President Ronald Reagan's executive assistants, 89 to 99, when he was out of office until he passed away, she was the uh, doorkeeper.
2: Well, and and she was young at the time, so not the last on her way out the door either. But she has a wonderful, fascinating new book. If you enjoyed Ronald Reagan, if you, you know... Uh, have fond memories of his presidency or curious about what was it like after he left office. Um, you know, Peggy Grande was had a front row seat to all of it.
1: And we'll talk with her in just a few minutes. But first, Carol, the big question, Yale University has taken a look at caregiving. Why, why would they do that?
2: Why would they do that? So, you know, that's when Yale is starting to look at caregiving, you know. Um, you know, it's it, real. It's front page. It's real. Uh, and they did a study, and, and this study was uh, one of the researchers, Jennifer Wolf, I've had the pleasure of meeting and, and working with. Um, I just want to give a shout-out to her. But this was published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, and the big they said the big take-home from this study was that we talk a lot about dementia um, and disability in older folks and caregivers working with it. We're going to talk about that with, you know, Peggy, because with Ronald Reagan having Alzheimer's. But the big takeaway was that the absolute number of older adults who are getting help don't have dementia and don't have disability. What they have are complex chronic illnesses that you know, they're juggling the medications, they're juggling the medical appointments. They've got a number of things going on, um, which can be just as difficult. So basically, what they said is that caregivers who are caring for someone with dementia or dis- disability has higher burden. So they're going to say that you know they really feel weighted down more. But almost half of those caring for somebody with less serious issues said, you know, caregiving takes a toll. It's emotional. It's, it's social. We limit our social activities. It's physical. And we make significant compromises in our own lives to care for people. So, and and, we knew and that. on the money. Knew, yeah, we knew that. So, thank you, Yale, for validating what we've been saying. How many years have we been on the air? And, and the <laughs> amount of
1: income that caregivers oh, walk the, away from.
2: That's always the scary one the $320,000 in right. income if you quit your job to be a caregiver. Um, and yeah. people need to understand that's the impact.
1: That's real money, real which money. you never see.
2: Real money.
1: So, summer's coming.
2: Summer is coming. It's, it's like right around the I can the see it from I, here. Over, I can yeah. see it. it's right there. Other
1: side of the airport. We, right. We overlook the San Antonio International Airport. It's coming, and that means a lot of folks are going on a trip, which offers special challenges for caregivers.
2: Well, especially if um, you're going abroad, and so we have this new, you know, thing that's come back around again, and it's called the measles. Um, which we had completely eradicated from this country. And in this process, a lot of people thought we had cured it, which is not the case. It's still it's never, out there. It's still out there. It's never been cured. And people don't realize that when they travel abroad, um, and, and maybe you're a caregiver who's taking a loved one, maybe you're escaping you know, this summer, um, that if you or your loved one, if you're born after 1956 and you didn't have the measles and you didn't get a measles vaccine, um, then you'd need to get one now because measles is making a comeback in other countries as well as this country from the number of people who haven't gotten their vaccinations. So it's still out there. Uh, A recent study showed that 48 percent of people that travel have simply refused to get vaccinations for one reason or the other. Um, And uh, we just make the mistake of thinking these diseases are cured or curable. Um, And so this is one of those that actually for adults is life-threatening.
1: Same as of polio, it's not cured, it's still there.
2: Still there, still out there. So, you know, we've heard about it in the news recently in the Minneapolis area. So you don't even have to be traveling abroad these days uh, to run risk of exposure. So go out there, get your flu shot this year, get your pneumonia shot this year uh, for the elderly, and get your shingles shot and your measles shot. Just, you know, go. It's okay. It doesn't hurt that much.
1: Shingles shot of all the shots you want to get? You do not want shingles. You
2: do not want Nobody to, wants I shingles. I talked to somebody today who's um, younger and said they would already gotten their shingles shot Shingles shot, which is not Try easy to say. Be very fast. careful. Right. Yeah. Um, and they were like, I am not going through that. And having known people who did get shingles, my mother had shingles at uh, the stomach, you know, where the sores it follows a nerve line. Yeah, uh, very, very painful. Very oh. painful.
1: You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9:30 a.m. The answer. You just joined us. on am Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, talking about items of the news. And in just a couple of moments, we'll be talking with Peggy Grandy. She is the former executive assistant to the late President Ronald Reagan. She was there the 10 years after he left office, and she will be with us talking about her book, The President. will see you now. So you're somebody who wakes up every day and you have a cup of yogurt. Do you know why you do that?
2: You know, I didn't, but now I do, and I thank the New York Times for telling me why I'm eating yogurt <laughs> every morning. Um, it's good, you know, it, this is not a, a big stretch. It's good for your bones. So it's better for your bones than they originally thought. So we all knew calcium was good. Um, and I have to thank my friend Lucy Barry Lack, who's been on the show. She's a, a caregiving expert in Canada. Montreal. In, yeah, in Montreal. and she came down and was actually, looking at all the different yogurts we have in the grocery store in the United States and kept saying, why are there so many calories? Why is there so much sugar? What have you done to the yogurt? Um, which uh, got me introduced good to the question. Well, it is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not plugging a brand, but I am going to say that I, you know, I'm a Siggy's uh, yogurt eater every morning. It's low in calories. It's very high in protein. And that it's Siggy's. It's a Greek yogurt. It's thick. It may be an acquired taste, but once you get used to it, um, it's very, very good, very fresh. And I liked it because of its high in protein. But what this research has has found that, that was done in Ireland, that after you adjust for age, physical activity, smoking, alcohol consumptions, and everything else, yogurt eaters compared to non-yogurt eaters had a 3% to 4% increase in bone density, and if you're a woman, it lowers your risk of osteoporosis by 39% wow. compared to non-yogurt eaters. And for men, 52%, why would you have anything else for breakfast or dessert? Um, and yogurt eaters performed better on physical fitness tests as well. So, so it's not just the calcium. It's got protein, it has micronutrients, vitamin D, vitamin B, um, Those the probiotics that are good for your gut. So, if you're not a yogurt eater, you know, you might want to check it out now. There's even more than one reason to do it.
1: So, that's Siggy's with a C, S? S-I-G-I-S.
2: Ciggies.
1: S-I-G-I-S. It's
2: not, it's, it's not cheap yogurt. I will say that. Of course not. But it does go on sale, and it lasts a long time in your fridge. So, find it on sale. Try it, you know, or try some other brand of yogurt. There's other brands of it's yogurt. It's widely available? Um, all, yes. It's like a Chobani, okay. you know, which is a Greek yogurt. Which, uh, so I would just say now's a good time to think about yogurt because, hey. It's
1: the only yogurt you eat with a knife and a fork.
2: Almost. No, not quite that bad. Not quite. Not quite that bad.
1: All right. Before we welcome Peggy Grande on our uh, Caregiver SOS on-air show, uh, there is an issue that is talked about in, in a lot of different ways when it comes to seniors and the issue is social isolation
2: well it is it's becoming quite well known and well publicized and i bring it up not just for the seniors but because social isolation impacts caregivers as well and so don't think it's just seniors social isolation is a problem for anyone Um, and uh, i recently had the opportunity to speak to Kiplinger retirement news about social isolation. An article came out, and they were talking about um, you know, 17 percent of older adults are socially isolated, and you know, maybe feeling lonely and being a lonely older person isn't new, but there is a definite link between isolation and poor health that we better understand now. It is as detrimental as being obese or smoking, it's a public health issue. Um, And basically, the Boston College Institute of Aging says social isolation kills. Wow. It kills older adults, it kills caregivers. You know, being bottled up with all that stress, no one to talk to, um, it impacts, it increases your stress level, and it can decrease your immune system. So it's talking about when you're planning, and I think this, for all of us who are, are boomers that hope to retire someday, You need to um, build your social capital as much as your, you know, nest egg of financial capital. In other words, start making friends across the age spectrum. You don't want everybody, you know, to be one of those that everybody dies off as you get older. My
1: mother used to say, I say, Mom, how's it going? She said, everyone I know is dead.
2: Yeah, there you go seriously end of conversation yeah, end of exactly. conversation um do, you know moving to a place you don't know anyone in retirement she did that just too. because the we, because the weather's better might be a mistake um and then you know there's places like our senior centers that are cool places to hang out it is not bingo and lunch where you can get caregiver services and meet other people. So, you know, we just throw it out there because you don't want your older loved one to be isolated, and we don't want you as a caregiver to be isolated. Pick up the phone, call someone that you know needs a cheery phone call. I like that. Do something about it. And
1: when you think about where that's all going, the senior centers here in uh, Bear County, which Women's Chevrolet Foundation has played a major role in, partnership in some with the city. Uh, is that a growing trend across the country? Are we the leader on that?
2: Well, it is. And they interviewed Jim Furman, who is the executive director of the National Council on Aging, and they have the National Institute of Senior Centers. So senior centers are not your, you know, it's not your grandfather's Oldsmobile. They are changing and they're revamping. Um, and You know, there's good services that you can access, and there's great things going on for older folks. And maybe you can avoid becoming a caregiver if you get your older loved one more engaged socially. I like that.
1: Peggy Grande is next right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in... The year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
1: Well, as we promised, we've got a fascinating guest joining us now on Caregiver SOS On Air. Peggy Grande is a former executive assistant to the late President Ronald Reagan. She spent 10-plus years with him after he left the White House. We're going to hear that story and hear how the onset of Alzheimer's played a role in what she did, what he did, and what his bride of many years, Nancy Reagan, did and Carol Zernial with us, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS on Air. You hear us on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And Peggy Grande, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me on your program today.
1: And you have a new book out, and it, uh, The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years by Hachette Books. And that's exactly the line you must have uttered 8 million times, The President Will See You Now. <laughs>
4: I consider myself to be one of the luckiest women in the world. I truly had a front row seat to history. I got to be that person who sat right outside Ronald Reagan's door. And anything and everything that came to him came across my desk or walked past me first. And what a great observation perch perch that was. And yes, many, many times I got to utter those incredible words that were such an honor the president will see you now
1: (laughs) so you were barely a kid how did you fall into that job
4: well, I started actually when I was in college. I was finishing college. I was a communications major. I was always that nerdy little kid that loved government and politics and president. And so in Ronald Reagan was the perfect convergence of everything I loved. And I was in school in Southern California at Pepperdine University. So when Ronald Reagan left the White House and returned to Los Angeles, there he was in my backyard. And my dad raised me to believe that somebody's got to have the job you want, and it might as well be you. And I believed him. And so I applied for a job in Ronald Reagan's office. I was hired on the spot for what I thought would be a short-term internship as I was graduating from college. Um, Once I graduated, they hired me on to work for the chief of staff as his executive assistant, which I served in that role for a few years. And then Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant he had had since before he was governor, retired. And they asked me to take that job. So you certainly don't say no to something like that, although it became a little bit of a juggle. I was six months pregnant at the time with my first baby. Um, I went on, I got married and had three of my four children while I was working for President Reagan. So the shuffle and the juggle of life was very real in my life. But what a great opportunity and honor to serve that man.
1: So I guess the obvious question is, what was he like Off TV, off radio, in person, just you and uh, President Reagan on the other side of that door. Was there a real guy there?
4: Absolutely. And I think people knew that Uh, people who watched him even through the lens of the camera or saw him from afar had this sense and this feeling that he was a real man and that he would be wonderful in person. And I would argue that he's maybe one of the few people that you maybe admire from afar or idolize and look at that no matter how big the pedestal was that you put him on, when you met him, he was even better in person than you thought. You know, we've all met those stars or celebrities that we've looked up to, and then you meet them in person and you're a little bit disappointed. And that was not Ronald Reagan at all. In person, he was more charming more kind more handsome and more wonderful even than he was through the camera lens uh, which is pretty remarkable because he had a great capacity to connect with people through the tv through the radio um, through all the avenues that he used back then
2: so right now in our political discourse there's so much discord but there's a little thread that runs through it where you hear you know people invoking ronald reagan and you hear the genuine affection and and sort of a longing for a time when Ronald Reagan was president Um, you know how do what do you hear I mean does that ring true for you do do people say you know oh we miss Ronald Reagan
4: of course I've had the great pleasure of being able to travel all over the nation and uh, be traveling internationally as well to talk about my book and the response I get is overwhelming because people are craving that civility, that kindness, that, um, that ability to disagree without being disagreeable, um, to have politics be something that also has personal relationships connected to it, and not have it be so heavily based on rhetoric, but have relationships that are meaningful and substantive and to find ways that we agree instead of focusing on the ways we disagree. Regardless of who you are, you get two people in a room, there may be a thousand things we disagree upon, but there's always going to be a handful of things we agree upon. And if we focus on those, can we use those as a starting point, as a building block for moving forward in a positive direction together. And that's what people are longing for and missing and craving about Ronald Reagan's legacy. And it lives and moves larger than ever, um, I believe now more than ever.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil. We're talking with Peggy Grande about her experience 10 years or so working as executive assistant to the late president, Ronald Reagan after he left office. Now, the pink elephant in the room, of course, he's ultimately diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, Many have suggested that uh, the signs, the symptoms were there long before the diagnosis was made public. Nancy Reagan, certainly a caregiver in your role in many ways. I suspect you were a caregiver. Well, that,
4: that role certainly fell to Mrs. Reagan. But I would say that in my professional capacity, I certainly had to make adjustments. And that professional role never lost the formality of he had been the President of the United States, but it did necessitate a, a, just an increased connection to him personally, a little more familiarity, a little more of maybe uh, somebody who would come alongside him and comfort him at times that were maybe a little bit more challenging or difficult or confusing. Um, But Mrs. Reagan, what a great caregiver. She truly was in every sense of the word. And I admired her for not only the care that she showed to her husband, but the example she was to all of us, not only those of us who worked with him personally, um, but really to the nation. She was the epitome of strength and grace and fearlessness in the face of something that had to have been terribly frightening.
2: Well, and I think that uh, President Reagan, you know, really elevating awareness of Alzheimer's and Mrs. Reagan elevating um, the caregiving issues, uh, you know, they really did a, a great service beyond their political service, Uh, in bringing attention to Alzheimer's uh, and its devastating consequences. Did you have to, before the diagnosis, were there adjustments? I mean, within, you know, his office, did you know something was amiss and adjustments needed to be made?
4: Well, I write about this extensively in the book, and, you know, I tried to walk that very fine line between being revealing, because that was something that he went public with, um, but also being respectful. And um, I'd like to think that I I navigated that space pretty well. You will definitely see his decline, um, but in a way that, is still ultimately respectful of him as a person and his position. You know, when I started working for him, of course, he was a very elderly gentleman. I knew that. (laughs) I was aware of that. And there was just the, the cute little endearing qualities, I think, that a lot of people as they age have. And so I certainly noticed that. But as you know, and as most of your listeners probably know, Alzheimer's is very specific. And so I go through in the book. Um, specific signs that I started noticing that other people close to him started noticing that led up to the ultimate um, diagnosis and looking back and writing the book it actually was difficult to separate myself from what we know about alzheimer's now because we only have the luxury of knowing what those signs and symptoms of alzheimer's are now because ronald and nancy reagan chose to take something very private and very personal and make it public and it was part of what they believed in as public servants that they could use their voice and their platform to bring awareness, to bring research, to bring, um, you know, maybe some uh, removing some shame and guilt that other families have and remove some of the stigma of Alzheimer's that had existed prior. And among so many things I admire them for, I really applaud them for that. It would have been very easy for them to retreat to the ranch and hide away and, you know, let the tabloids speculate. But that's not who they were, and I appreciate them for going public with something that was terribly difficult for them personally.
1: My dad had dementia, and I can remember uh, early on as the symptoms increased. My mom uh, was a facilitator for him. Uh, Sal, you remember Carol. You remember so-and-so. You know so-and-so. You remember your son, Ronnie. uh, And were there times as time went on that that was part of what you were noticing, that uh, you would have him meet folks who he obviously knew but couldn't quite latch on and you would be his enabler?
4: Well, I don't know about an enabler. You know, as any person of staff support or any spouse. I mean, my husband does that for me all the time, and I certainly don't have Alzheimer's. Um, you know, names are sometimes difficult to remember, and so I, I don't throw that on him. Um, but there are different ways that you come alongside and support a person, and as you know, it, it's I would say a little bit more of an art form than a science because every day is a little bit different. Every situation is a little bit different. Just because he needed something from me one moment or one appointment or one visit or one trip doesn't mean that that's what he always needed. And so it was really being in tune with him, learning to read his cues, read his eyes, read his body language and expressions and really jump in to support him when he needed it but also giving him the space to continue in the ways he always had as long and as much as he could um for as long as that could last
2: well you know i think what you just said um helps me to realize that he accomplished something that we hope everyone will accomplish, which is to live fully the person with Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. to live as fully as possible for, you know, as long as possible for the rest of their life, whatever that functioning ability is, but having, you know, life goes on even with Alzheimer's and, and maybe he had more, you know, more support than some people have, but still he sets a wonderful example.
4: I would agree with that. And if you look at just the pattern of his life too, long past the age when a lot of people choose to retire, Um, and go and travel or do other things which are none of those are bad you know but at 69 years old this man chose to jump into the hardest most rigorous job not only of his lifetime but i would argue of anybody's lifetime and he really showed that life can be lived full throttle all the way to the end and to dive into something um so monumental at his age Really remarkable, and you know, I worked for him from 89 to 99, and so the first five years were prior to his diagnosis and his announcement. And yet, he made that announcement to the American people and to the world. And in a lot of ways, the world started saying goodbye to him at that point. And yet, I was still saying good morning to him every day for the next five years. Hold that thought,
1: hold that thought, we're going to come right back to you. That's a pretty good way to pick it up again. We'll do good morning in just a minute. I'm Ron Aaron, (laughs) along with Carol Zernia and uh, Peggy Grande is with us. Her book, uh, Just Out, well, February, that's not that long ago. The President will see you now. My stories and lessons from Ronald Reagan's final years. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer. Mm Well, we are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Peggy Grande. She is uh, the author of a book, The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Uh, she spent 10 years on his staff from when he left the White House in 89 to 1999. And we had just gotten to the point where while he and Nancy went public, with Alzheimer's. And you were suggesting, Peggy, that the world was saying goodbye to him every morning. You'd walk in and say, good morning, Mr. President.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. And what Carol was mentioning earlier before the break was that, you know, what a great example he was of somebody who continued to live life. The The diagnosis wasn't the end of his life. Certainly life changed for he and Mrs. Reagan at that point. But he didn't jump the worst conclusion immediately but he kept going and living life to its fullest to the best that he could as long as he could and those of us around him wanted to support him in that and make it as possible and as easy for him to continue doing all the things that he loved and we made adjustments along the way um but even those, you know with alzheimer's and with other forms of aging sometimes just because they can't do something one day doesn't mean that they'll never do it again and so being very open and flexible in um, adjusting the schedule as needed but also providing some breathing room for them to still enjoy things that maybe they didn't enjoy yesterday but can enjoy tomorrow.
2: Well in your book you've got some photos that people have never seen. Um, Mm -hmm. What what you know can you share without giving everything away a, a few little surprises or things that people might find surprising that are in the book?
4: Well, I find it surprising that people don't realize that Ronald Reagan lived for 15 years after he left the White House, and those were productive and busy and very meaningful years. And so most of the photos that are in the book, I actually took myself. Um, I had the pleasure of being his post-presidency photographer, and most of the photos that are up in the writing library and many of the photos that are in the book, um, I actually was behind the camera lens, including the cover photo, which I love because I think it just captures him just the way I saw him in those years sitting at his desk as if he is waiting to see you now. Um, But I think people will be surprised to see that post-presidency, there was a parade of world leaders that came to see him. And in the post-presidency years, they didn't have to come for diplomatic or protocol reasons. They came because they wanted to. They liked him. They had a relationship with him that they wanted to continue. And so everybody from Gorbachev to Margaret Thatcher to Brian Mulroney from Canada and Prime Minister Nakasone from Japan and Helmut Kohl from Germany and Mother Teresa even came and these were people that had a relationship with him that was personal and they wanted to continue and I think that's a remarkable tribute to who he was as a person not just as a president or a politician.
1: So you were like the fly on the wall that all of us have wanted to be from time (laughs) to time.
4: I was, you know, if you ever wonder how you get photos of private meetings, there is that person who gets to be the lucky photographer and truly a fly on the wall. And what a great opportunity to see him when the cameras weren't rolling, when he thought nobody was watching these private, you know, unguarded moments meeting with world leaders and, and just everyday patriotic Americans. Some of the most heartfelt, um, moving stories in the book are not based on you know a star-studded list of celebrities. They're ordinary, nameless people who made such an impact on me and on the president when he met them that they made it into the pages of this book. And many of them, they actually bring a tear to your eye because it's just a beautiful um, account of a human who was connected to people of all sorts. It didn't matter what your title was. It didn't matter what your name was or where you were from. You were special to him, and you were worthy of acknowledgement.
2: Well, one of the things in the book that you talk about is the Berlin Wall, which, of course, is one of the things he's most famous for, for, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I happen to have a piece of the Berlin Wall that I got from a friend of mine who was there that day, Um, and so did... President Reagan does he have more than one piece of the wall? Well, you know, what's his souvenir?
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, up at the Reagan Library, there's a several-ton slab up there, so I would guess that's his souvenir of the Berlin Wall coming down. But what a humble and gracious man! He never looked at that as being something that he did by himself. Um, he knew that there was influencers all around the globe that made that happen and really plays tribute to the German people. Yeah, but and that line, Peggy, that,
1: Peggy you tear can down, down that. Play, wall. But, but that line, <laughs> <Tear> <laughs>
4: down Mr., that wall. Mr. Gorbachev, yes. tear down that <laughs> wall. I'm, I'm saying what he would say. Uh, we all know that he was bold and unafraid, and even at the, you know, his advisors, his State Department, everybody was telling him, don't say that line, it's too confrontational. They kept taking it out of his speech, he Uh kept putting it back in. So you and I and many others would, of course, attribute much of that coming down to him, but he was a true believer in freedom and a great champion for freedom, and he believed that the German people, once they got a glimmer of freedom, once they got a taste of freedom, that they themselves would make things happen. And That's really what he believed about the American people as well. He didn't look back on the 1980s and say, oh, didn't I do great things? He looked back with pride saying, what amazing things the American people accomplished together during the 1980s. And maybe he painted a vision and maybe he gave them voice and maybe he changed some regulations and lowered some taxes and did some things that allowed people to do that that he would never have been the one to say. I did great things in the 80s. He would have said, man, it was wonderful to watch the American people come alive again and accomplish so much during those years that what, I what was, uh, being president.
1: By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zurniel, and we get so wrapped up in this conversation, I want to remind you what you're listening to. Peggy Grandy is with us, author of a new book, The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Uh, was there one or, or two things that he was most proud of?
4: The thing he was most proud of is that he made the American people believe in themselves again. You know, when he took office in January of 1981, the, the country was in, you know, a really bad time of malaise. The taxes were high, inflation was high, unemployment was high, um, but the worst part of all is he believed that the American people had lost faith in themselves. And on day one, Ronald Reagan took office and he started saying things like, it's warning in America. There's a new dawn ahead. Little shining city on the hill, and we all get to be part of it. And even though on day one of his presidency nothing had really changed in America the perception had entirely changed, and it reinvigorated a nation that wanted so desperately to have change and to believe in itself again. And so I believe he would have looked back and said that's what he was most proud of, was making the American people believe in themselves again. Of course, he was proud of restoring the military and, again, making the military proud of themselves again, and also for being allowing America to be a beacon of freedom that shined a torch of liberty into dark places in the world where oppression existed and bringing freedom to so many people. I mean, that that is life-changing, and it's had a domino effect all across Eastern Europe and around the world.
2: Well, I, I'm beginning to think that maybe you sh- should have been a speech writer as well. That was lovely.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 he can't help but influence you and inspire you, and you spend that much time at the feet of greatness like that, and it can't help but change your life. And, you know, that in part is why I chose to write this book. I feel like I am a steward of what I saw and what I witnessed, and I can't keep that to myself. I need to share that, and the beautiful part of sharing my story through the pages of this book has been the letters and the emails that I have received from people who are saying, yes, I loved your story, and let me tell you mine, and how wonderful an impact this man made across the nation, around the world, on people in so many different ways, and I hope he at the end of his life, knew the impact that he had, not only on me, but on so many people around
3: the world. Well,
2: talk a little bit about the power behind the throne. Nancy Reagan, you know, as a caregiver after the presidency, what advice do you think that Nancy Reagan would give to people who are taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's today?
4: Yeah, you know, I don't know that she would give them a list because I think she would have believed, like I do, you, you have to lead with your heart. And it helps, of course, to read books and have support groups and to know that you're not the only one going through it. But at the end of the day, it's a very personal and it's a very individualized system of working with a person and she did such a beautiful job of lovingly caring for him. Um, Every time I went to the house to visit him, even after he stopped coming to the office, he was impeccably groomed and So well taken care of. And that was one of the messages I wanted to convey in this book. You know, for people who loved him, and once he left the public eye, they wanted to know was he okay? Was he surrounded with love and good attention? Was he well cared for? And my answers to all of those would be yes. And Mrs. Reagan was at the forefront of that. She was brave and bold and took charge. Of making sure that he was surrounded by people who loved him and cared for him and and had his best interests in mind and she had done that throughout his life but certainly had to transition in that role to um, a role that she did not speak out she also became a great advocate for him and spoke out not only about Alzheimer's um, and the need for research but became a great champion of his legacy which I admired because she always preferred to be in his shadow and didn't want really the spotlight and When we are faced with moments like this, I think we can all dig deep and find within ourselves heroic strength. We can learn to find balance in the imbalance of life. And I hope that even in the midst of pain and crisis, that there can be a joy um, that can be found regardless. And that's a lot of the message I tried to convey in my book as well, that there can be joy even in the pain. And we can look back on a life well lived and celebrate that as much as we grieve the letting go.
1: That's a good point. And did he have a nickname for you? <laughs>
4: no, just Peggy. <laughs> I
1: was just curious. That was it. And, and there yeah, you are. Yeah. Si- you're sitting at your desk. The phone rings. Yeah, this is Miguel Gorbachev. His Ronnie Did you get those kind of calls? <laughs>
4: Well, he, he wouldn't call because he um, always worked through an interpreter, but Brian Mulroney, who was the Prime Minister of Canada, was a wonderful dear friend of President Reagan. And he actually would pick up the phone quite often himself, and with this beautiful French thick accent, he would say, Peggy, it's Brian. Is my good friend Ron available? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excuse my bad accent and uh, imitation, Mr. Lordy. Um It was just, but just what a wonderful person! And he would pick up the phone and call a lot. And I've actually still continued to be in touch with him. He gave me a beautiful blurb from the back of my That's book, cool. which I appreciate. That that is just a nice sign of an ongoing friendship and affection for the president. So, yeah, I did pick up those phone
1: calls. <laughs> were there some that you were surprised that he was connected to? Who called and you said, "My gosh, he knows everybody."
4: You know, it never surprised me um, that everybody knew and loved him. What was surprising sometimes is when people would come to the office to meet him, you would have celebrities or sports figures or even other politicians that most people would be a little, you know, shaking in the knees to meet. Um, But these people would kind of clutch my arm and pull me close and say, Heidi, I'm so nervous. What should I say or not say? Or What should I do or not do? And regardless of who they were, They knew on the pecking order, Ronald Reagan never would have put himself at the top, but they knew where they stood, and they knew that he was always at the top of any pyramid. And so it was funny to see people, um, you know, just realizing, wow, this is is a big deal. But he always put people at ease, which I admired and appreciated, um, because he could have lorded over people. He was the leader of the free world, but that just wasn't his style.
2: (laughs) Well, we know that there are listeners out there who are going to want to get the book. So where will they find the book and and how, you know, do you have a website?
4: Yeah, so the book is fortunately available anywhere, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of your independent booksellers or retailers. Um, There's a hardback book. There's also an e-version. And there's an audio book that I myself read for, which was an amazing experience to take the pages of this book and speak them into a format that a lot of people have really responded to, whether it's a busy caregiver who doesn't have time to sit and read but can listen to it in the background, whether it's a businessman or a woman commuting, um, a millennial who's out for a jog. Um, a lot of people have really enjoyed the audiobook. Um, I'm also on social media, Peggy underscore Grandy on Twitter and Instagram. I've got a Facebook page, The President Will See You Now, and a website, PeggyGrandy.com, where I would love to hear feedback from your listeners, if they read the book, what they liked about it, what resonated with them. Because cool. again, I've loved sharing my story and I love hearing other stories too.
1: Peggy Grandy, it was great talking with you. Thank you very much and good luck with the book.
4: Thank you so much for having me on your program today.
1: You Take care. Bye-bye. Peggy Grande, author of The President Will See You Now, a phrase that she uttered quite often. Up next, take 10, Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us here on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer with Ron Aaron and Carol Zernia.: It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr.
1: Robin Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Well Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
1: Well, we are delighted to have you with us on Take 10. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS Honor programs, we bring you Take 10, where Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel toss around a topic or two. I'm only laughing because Jamie is breathing heavily into, into the, the phone. phone, which you might do if you are feeling socially isolated, which is a topic we're going to take up. Or
0: so if you're passionate about a radio show.
1: Well, thank you.
2: So, Jamie... Um, I was reading an article uh, that was in Kiplinger Retirement News about social isolation and they were talking about it from the perspective of the older adult saying that you know this is the new smoking this is the new obesity but you've talked about it in terms of caregivers
0: no doubt in fact feeling alone uh, is the the common denominator of caregiving because as soon as we find out we're a caregiver All of a sudden, our habits change, the routine that we've been in change. Everything around us, unless we have enough education, empowerment, energy from like caregiver SOS, changes in our mind. And often the shame and stigma factor also feeds into it, and then we start isolating and isolating and isolating until, like I always say, it becomes a cancer of our soul.
2: Well, we recently did an interview with Peggy Grande, who was the administrative assistant for President Reagan after he left the White House during those years when he had Alzheimer's. And she said something really interesting. She said that as soon as everybody found out he had Alzheimer's, they started saying goodbye to him. Whereas she's there, she's saying good morning every day. And he lived uh, many years after that. Um, You know, does that with illness uh, and Alzheimer's and the conditions that cause people to need a caregiver, you know, what happens? Why does everybody disappear? Why is that goodbye?
0: You know, I think you just put your, your, your finger on it just in your question. I mean, it's a lack of education that our culture has. And so as soon as we hear these sort of, charged up words like alzheimer's or dementia things that we don't understand but we fear incredibly in our own selves and we don't seek out answers we start running from it and that's precisely what you're seeing here
2: well do we have a value judgment in this country about illness um, and sickness that that if you're sick it's bad and if you're well it's good do do we assign a value to illness and health
0: I think, actually, we do, if I can answer it in the general sense, but I think behavioral health, neurological challenges, uh, diseases of the mind, if you will, psychiatric disorders, I think they are, like, ratcheted up even more so.
2: Well, I, I would agree with you, because most people don't know how to react to unusual behavior. And if, often someone no, with uh, Alzheimer's
1: will have unusual behavior.
2: Or a behavioral health diagnosis. Yes. So that that might... I mean, there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable.
0: Well, the struggle is also this, Carol. You know, really, every family is touched by mental health issues. And today we're seeing uh, how many families are being touched by Alzheimer's, dementia. And so it's scary for us. And it's almost like a clinical projection. You know, we kind of run from things that are scary to us that we can't embrace. Um, Therapists often work with uh, acceptance, if you will. Acceptance is really our first step and awareness is our first step. And and so most of the public it, it doesn't seek out mental health treatment, and they don't seek out education around Alzheimer's and dementia. So I have to really say that, that though we all love a healthy society, and I do think we honor youth and health much too much, uh, the behavioral side and the neurological side needs a heck of a lot of our attention, even more so.
2: Well, one of the stories I've told in the past was, um, you know, when I was – my weekend of my wedding, we went out for dinner and we were at a Mexican restaurant and my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law who had Alzheimer's disease, you know, I saw the waitress giving her this very odd look. And my mother-in-law was sitting and eating butter pats, those little square pieces of butter on the cellophane. She was pulling off the little wrapper, eating the butter pat, getting another one, pulling off the wrapper, eating the butter pat, pulling off another. Just, just, you know, binge binge eating the butter off of the table. And the waitress was just horrified. Um, And so I said... You know, I think she's hungry. You went, could you bring some crackers or bread to go with that butter? And she went, "Oh, she just couldn't run off fast enough to huh. go get that." Huh. So, 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 you know, that kind of uh, just go with it, kind of an attitude. Whether you know, I think for a lot of us, if we could. I'm not saying I did exactly the right thing, but I think that our instinct is, as opposed to being afraid and uncomfortable, is to say, you know, what can I do to make this feel a little bit more normal um, and just go with it uh, for somebody who's sick or in a wheelchair or something unusual happens. Now, you're
1: listening to Take 10. If you just joined us, part of Caregiver SOS On Air, I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist, with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, here in the studio and we're talking about social isolation, how it affects both seniors, caregivers, care recipients. And Dr. Jamie, what is it physiologically that being socially isolated does to us?
0: Well, it creates depression, Ron. It creates also often obesity or it can create a situation of starvation. It creates sleep deprivation, um, really loneliness and, and isolation. Creates a whole new reality uh, that we're not used to, and I think it has a huge deleterious effects on medical challenges in our lives. You know, if it doesn't exacerbate it, it creates even more. And I think though the strategies out there for for staying well, if you will, can combat isolation and and, and loneliness. I think that loneliness and isolation lead to very very difficult uh, conditions that we can't live in. But there are ways to deal with it. I don't want to send your listeners away without understanding that there are strategies of how we can avoid uh, the loneliness syndrome. Like what? Well, first of all, respite care. I mean, periods of respite care allows a caregiver to take care of their own personal needs. Um, and that's really the big issue here. I think that isolation and loneliness is combated best by maintaining your own sense of self. I um, mean, you know, if you use time that you have to participate in activities, go out to a sort of support group to do yoga, to, to walk, let's say, um, I think it, it's huge in terms of combating uh, loneliness and isolation. But you have to set that routine up and you have to consistently follow it.
2: Well, I think one of the most important things that you just said is you have to set that up. So... Fighting social isolation—it's not going to just happen. You're not going to accidentally, f- probably not, just fall into activity. You know, you, it, it does take a little bit of effort to make arrangements for you to have opportunities for social engagement if they don't come along naturally. But you have
0: to absolutely. be willing. To,
2: you have to be willing to reach
0: out. Yeah, absolutely, you do, and and that's where we go to again—the family of choice. That's where loved ones, if you will, who can see isolation in their loved ones, need to kind of get around them and not ask for the world, not have to totally get re-engaged in life, but take baby steps and then come around them and watch them interact and maybe take them to, you know, community, you know, church, temple, ashrams, or go take them to a support group um, and just start, just start slowly. Once we actually identify it, we can slowly bring our loved one or a caregiver back into the world of the living, if you will.
2: Well, let me ask you this question, because there are opportunities to interact with people electronically, you know, like Skype or FaceTime. So do you think that could be a new tool in our arsenal for fighting isolation?
0: Well, interesting. It's, it's kind of, how do I say this? You're kissing the sister's solution, I guess. So, if mean, the listeners understand, um, it's definitely better been being isolated i do a lot of telephone therapy over the years and um, i think it's a huge help to have some somebody enter your home even if it's through some cyber way Uh, but i don't want people to think that that's really going to take the place of what real interaction real experiential social activities are I, I, i do think it's a great stepping stone carol and and so we're moving a lot towards the telemedicine telehealth place um but there's nothing like a real you know hug a real handshake and to get off of social media and, and to start really you know baby steps getting back into society
1: there's an ad i hear on cnn all the time for telephone therapy a therapist is one phone call away uh and, and i gather the rules have changed a little bit in terms of your profession that you can now uh, provide therapy over the phone
0: you can in the proper platform ron it's got to be uh, approved you know for confidentiality and, and HIPAA accredited and you name it there's still a lot of bells and whistles but they're out there and there's no doubt that we're only going to be able to address a lot of things in the future with a birth of primary care through telemedicine and actually they say about 70% of, of clinical and medical challenges can be handled by telemedicine.
2: So Jamie what's your three first rules of caregiving? <laughs>
0: Don't isolate, don't isolate, and don't isolate. Stop right there. Mm -hmm. Flat out of
1: time. Thank you. Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. Ron Aaron with Jamie Heisman and Carol Zernial.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zernial for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.